So let me ask you a question. How many of you are concert people? You like to go to concerts, hear live music? Show of hands. Okay, three of you. Good to know. All right, the rest of you just don't listen for the next few minutes, I guess. All right, I'm, I'm not really either. I'm not a huge concert person. When I was growing up, I didn't go to concerts very much. But to be honest with you, part of that is because I grew up in Dyersburg, Tennessee, and having a concert in Dyersburg didn't necessarily guarantee quality music, all right? Lots of backpack. Boy, she sure did good. Yeah, but, well, okay, maybe, all right? But when I was growing up, there were two acts that I wanted to see in concert. You could call it kind of a bucket list. I really wanted to see them and never got the opportunity growing up. One was a guy that um, uh, I would later find out used to live around here a little bit. Uh, And is in fact, I just got informed building a new house around here because his comeback is coming. All right. That's Garth. How many of you know Garth? All right. Garth Brooks, right? Garth Brooks was the guy I wanted to see Garth. When I was growing up, I like country music. Garth Brooks was it. I mean, he was hitting the scene right about that time. I started listening to country music with Clint Black and Mark Chestnut and Alan Jackson and all those guys. And right in the middle of that was this guy named Garth Brooks who came on the scene, sold tons of records. In fact, his tours became just famous for how crazy they were. I mean, he would swing out on ropes and he'd run across the stage and everybody said, if you like his music at all, you got to see him live. You got to see him in concert. So uh, I remember when I was a teenager, Garth was coming to Memphis. Memphis was the closest place to us. And uh, I said, all right, I'm, 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 I'm going to try to go see him. But in those days, some of you may remember this, to see Garth Brooks, you just didn't get online because they didn't have that. All right. You, you had to go to this thing they call a record store. All right. And so I went to the luxurious Dyersburg Mall to the sound shop. All right. And so I go there and I'm, I'm ready to get in line. And they had a lottery system where they would give you a number. You showed up between these hours. They would give you a number. At a certain time, they would choose a number, and then they would go forward from that number and give out tickets to the people that had those numbers. Anybody know anything about that? Good. Okay. So you learned something today, all right? And so I get there, and my number is like 223, which was not bad. They started with 100, so 123. Sound Shop had like 400 tickets. So they sounds good. I'm excited. They come out with the lottery number, and it is 241. And so they rearrange you in line like that, and I just went home. All right? So I didn't get to see Garth when I was a teenager. Now, a few years ago, do you all remember there was a flood around here? I remember where I was when it flooded. I was right here with about 12 of you, all right? Because that's all that made it that day. And it may not the best decision we've ever made to have church, but... Hey, I didn't need that, Randy. <laughs> we had we had people stuck in elevators. We had water coming. It was good we were here because there's water coming in places. I had to ride home with the Brooks, and we had to take a circuitous route to get there. It was a crazy day. But you remember that Garth did a flood benefit concert, right? Anybody go to one of those? Three of us. Good. All right. And so I got online one day and I saw I could get tickets to see Garth Brooks for 10 bucks. And obviously it's because nobody went, like nobody here went, all right? And so for 10 bucks, I got tickets and we went and saw him and it was really good. It was a really great concert and I was so glad. The other group that I wanted to see, that was in 2010. The other group that I wanted to see, I got to see six months later. Knocked them both off the bucket list in six months. It was a rock group that 
I didn't really love their music, listen to it all the time, but I heard they were just really good in concert. There's a group U2. Everybody know U2? All right. So I, they were coming to, to Vanderbilt. They came to Nashville. It did an amazing show. I went out there. My best friend growing up and I, who lives down in Franklin, I called him and said, let's do this together. And so we went. Now, here, here's the thing about that U2 concert. Two things. First of all, it was July 2nd. Anybody ever been in Nashville on July 2nd? It's hot, right? Humidity that night, I think, was only 112%, all right? It was blazing hot. Secondly, it was in a sold-out, filled-up Vanderbilt Stadium. Now, how many of you ever been in Vanderbilt when it's sold out and filled? Now, if you've been to a football game, obviously not. But, I mean, I mean, generally, unless it were other fans, all right? Generally, it, it, but 112 degrees, I mean, people on the ground, people in the stands, it was hot. And about halfway through the show, I said, I, I got to go get some water. I got to get something to drink. So I got out and got down, got me a Diet Coke and was coming back through and I got trapped. You, you ever go to get something in the middle of a show or middle of a game and you get trapped in that corridor that leads to the steps? Like there were people kind of up there and they were watching and I was just like, let's move it along. But they didn't want to disturb people and I got trapped behind them. So I couldn't see what was going on. I, I, I'd missed part of the show. I knew it. They started a song that wasn't my favorite song. And so I, I went during that time. But on the way back, I got stuck in that corridor. So I was literally under the stands, stuck in a corridor, and couldn't see anything. What was amazing is, in that moment, I heard something that was familiar yet different. This is what I heard in that corridor. Now, here's the thing. I don't need to know whether you like that version or not. Whether you're too fan or not. Here's what was amazing to me. This was a rock concert. This was the biggest tour of that year. In fact, it was the biggest tour of about three years in a row. More people there, more money, more elaborate. It was a spectacle. And one of the most powerful moments of that entire concert was when everything went quiet. Bono began to sing Amazing Grace. But here's what was amazing about it to me. Is that almost instantaneously, everybody in that stadium started singing it. Now, I, I don't, I'm not naive enough to think that everybody understood it or knew what they were saying. And, and I have sung that song hundreds, thousands of times. And, and I don't mean this in any way other than the way I mean it. And that is... When you sing a song that many times in a similar setting, it becomes something you sing and don't think about. 
And yet I'm standing in the corridor under the seats of the stadium at Vanderbilt when I hear that song almost as if it's for the first time. And I'm amazed at what happens when I realize that the song resonates with everybody. Now here's the question. Why does it resonate with everybody? Well, the simple answer to that is because we all love the idea of grace, right? Grace is us getting what we do not deserve. It is unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. And that's what gets us through difficult times. That's what gets us through a rough week. That's what gets us through a difficult relationship. That's what gets us through a mess up we make at work. You, you know, we, we think through, well, well maybe there's something good going to come out of this. I mean, if you're out there and you're struggling to know what it means to be a good husband or wife or parent or child or student or worker or boyfriend or girlfriend, we're all there. Grace is that thing is hopefully we'll get it right. It's also that thing that that we know that we love because we all need it. You ever said something, done something, and you wish you could take it back the moment it gets out there? Right? I got two hands up from Stacey Sternberg in the back. I see those hands. Where you're just sitting there and you think, you know, I heard about this week, uh, a husband whose wife came home and said, hey, babe, uh, I got a haircut, which first of all, just... Thank you to the lady for telling him that at the front end, right? Not expecting him to figure it out. Amen, guys? All right. Maybe you guys are good at that. I don't know. Walks in and says, hey, hey, babe, I got a haircut. What do you think? And he says, well, I love you. <laughs> it's not what she was looking for, right? I mean, there are times when I will say something and I want to grab the words as they're coming out. Like, let me get those back. Because you know what's coming, right? And you can't say anything to undo. In fact, guys are particularly bad about saying something. It gets out there. You realize, "Uh uh-oh, I've made a mistake. I realize that either by the expression on her face or what's happening. And so you start to try to explain it and you just keep, right, digging that deeper hole. We need grace in a relationship because we're going to say things. We're going to do things. We're going to forget things. We're going to remember things too late. We're going to have these moments when we fail. And if our partner doesn't extend grace to us, it's not going to be a very long relationship. We both need it. Amen? If you've been married or in a relationship for any amount of time, you know that it does not survive without giving each other the benefit of the doubt and little room to fail. Because we're not perfect. That's not going to happen. So we love this concept, this idea of grace. That's why when a song talks about grace that is amazing, that finds us, that saves us, that gives us hope, we all want to buy in. Last week we started this series in the book of Hosea. If you've got your Bibles... Turn to the book of Hosea, and I want to tell you from the very beginning what my, my, my statement is for this week and what I want you to walk away with from this week. And it's a simple statement, and this is the entire point. They're not going to be eight points. They're going to be one point. And this is the point. It is from God's perspective. It is an understanding for us. The book of Hosea teaches this, that you are, we are, if you want to change that to I am, you are pursued with passionate grace. 
Now, I'm going to explain those two words kind of together over the next few minutes as we look at this story together. But but here's what I want you to understand, that you are being pursued on a regular basis by the God of the universe. And you cannot outrun him. You cannot get away from him. You must turn and look at him, but you must realize that you're being chased, not for him to get you or to write you up or to list all the bad stuff that's happened, but you're being chased with passionate grace. If you've got your Bibles open, Hosea, if not, it'll be up on the screen, at least this first part. I just wanted to look at what happens where we left the story off last week. Now, if you were here last week, you know where we were. If you weren't, I'd encourage you to go to the website and watch the videos. We kind of set up this series of what's coming up. But we're in the story of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet of God in the northern kingdom. At this time, God's people were divided into the north and the south, Israel and Judah. He was a prophet to the north. And what did God ask Hosea to do? What did he ask him to do? Mary prostitute, all right? He said, hey, listen, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go marry a prostitute. And he says to her, and she's going to continue down that road. She's going to continue doing that. She's going to leave you. She's going to be unfaithful. But it's your job to hold this family together. And so it told us, and we, we, we saw this a little bit last week. I want to talk about it a little more detail uh, in verse, um, verse 3 of chapter 1. Last week, by the way, we covered two verses. This week, we're covering two chapters. So we're going quickly, all right? Verse 3. So Hosea married Gomer, the daughter of Deblaim, and she became pregnant and gave Hosea a son. And the Lord said, name the child Jezreel. Now, let's stop right there for just a moment. Um, we know that names are important in the Bible. They give pictures of character. They give descriptions of prophetic judgment. They give descriptions of what God is feeling, thinking, acting in that moment, what the child's future will look like. In fact, in Scripture, some of the most significant moments are when God changes someone's name. Now, in our society, people still spend time choosing names, but they do that through, you know, websites and books and trying to figure out what won't get them teased on the playground and all that kind of stuff. Here... They are giving a name for a purpose. And God says, your first son. Now, from all the purposes, this is Hosea and Gomer's son is to be named Jezreel. Now, that probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you. But to the people to which Hosea was called, Jezreel would have been a terrible name. Because it was a place of slaughter and killing and destruction. One of the greatest massacres that had happened under the watch of the northern kingdom. Scholars have said it would be like naming a child Auschwitz or Hiroshima or World Trade Center. Like your name is associated with that event. Now the name actually means God scatters. God is saying, listen, because of the way my people have acted, I'm about to scatter. He says, I'm about to punish King Jehu's dynasty to avenge the murders he committed at Jezreel. Now, there's always a note of hope. He goes on to say this. In fact, I will bring an end to Israel's independence. I will break its military power in the Jezreel Valley. So he says, listen, your first son, he's born. You're excited. You're so, you know, I remember holding Eli for the first time. I remember holding Luke and Maddie and Ava. We had spent months thinking about names, talking about names, praying about names, looking at names, looking at lists, looking at all that stuff. What's hot this year, last year? We don't want too close, but we don't want it to be really weird. You know, all that stuff. 
And you hold that child and you are so excited. And you pronounce the name for the first time. Well, so good to meet you, Elijah. You just know it's perfect. Parents, you understand that sometimes in the process you think, what if I give them the wrong name? And they come out and two years later we're like, it's not a Luke. What are we going to do? All right. But imagine God coming to you and saying, I want you to name this child after one of the most painful moments in the history of your nation. And it reminds people I'm about to destroy them. Have fun with that. And here's the thing. That's the best of the three names he has for his kids. It goes on to say this in the next verse. So soon Gomer became pregnant again and gave birth to a daughter. Now, for most scholars think, most people think that this is not Hosea's, by the way. That she's gone back to her previous life. And the Lord said to Hosea, Name your daughter Loruamah, not loved. For I will no longer show love to the people of Israel and forgive them. So basically he says, okay, your first son was Jezreel, God scatters. Here's your daughter, and I want you to name your daughter no love, not loved. Now, we hear Loruamah, and that's the name, but it's literally he named her not loved. Now, imagine that every time you call your child. Hey, one that I don't love, come on. Hey, not loved, I need you. He says, because I'm not going to show love to the people of Israel any longer. Verse 7. But I, the Lord their God, will show love to the people of Judah. He says, I'm not going to show Israel, but Judah's okay. The other part. I'll personally free them from the enemies without any help from the weapons. Verse 8. After Gomer had weaned Loruamah, so right away again, she became pregnant and gave birth to a second son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, not my people. By the way, if you're looking for baby names, This is not the place to go, all right? For Israel is not my people, and I am not their God. Here's an understanding of Loami is this, not mine. Now, I want you to think about his three kids. When he calls their name, he says, Hey, God scatters, not loved, and not mine. Y'all come on in. Right? I mean, that's their names. Here's the reason that he named them that, okay? This is the reason God intends for that. And this is what I want you to get out of this whole section and what's coming in the next chapter is simply this. God pursues you with a passionate grace. And the key word there is passionate. You you see, God's love for us is all-consuming, passionate, fiery hot love. Now, we don't often think of that. We think of God's love as static and stationary, cold, calculated. But if you read the rest of Hosea chapter 1 and 2, it sounds like somebody who is deeply in love with another person that gets their heart broken by them. And when there is a passionate love and a retro, and a, and a betrayal is involved, there is a passionate response. Amen? I mean, if you just look at some of the things, this won't be up on the screen, but if you've got your Bibles open, in fact, I had a hard time, being honest with you, finding a translation that was suitable to read to you today. 
Because some translations try to gloss over the severity of it. In fact, the Bible that I usually use, the translation I usually use, which is the Holman Christian Standard Bible put out by Lifeway, they try to soften it a little too much. They don't use the, the harsh words. On the other hand, if I used a translation that said exactly what Scripture said, there would be some of you that the only thing that you would say when you walked out of here today was, I can't believe the pastor said that word. Because it's there. If you don't believe me, read the ESV or go read the message. You can do that online. Read Hosea chapter 1 and chapter 2. Because God is mad. This isn't like, hey, my people have left me. Y'all go. That'll be all right. He's mad. In chapter 2, for instance, he says, call Israel to account. She's no longer my wife. I'm done. It's over. I'm no longer her husband. And then he says, tell her to take off that makeup that makes her look like a prostitute and the suggestive clothing that lets everybody see what they want to see. If she doesn't, if she doesn't stop, I'll strip her naked, put her out on display, and I'll let her die of thirst. She has betrayed me, and I am done. I'm not going to love her anymore, and I'm not going to love her children because they're not my children. She has run to other men. She has run to other lovers. In fact, chapter 2, verse 5 says, Their mother, talking about Israel, talking about God's people, are shameless prostitutes, became pregnant in shameful ways. Now, he's talking to Hosea about Gomer, but he's saying this in a way that says, Listen, this is my people. In fact, the people of Israel had done that. And what God is saying is, I am the one that called you out. I chose Abram, not of anything of him. I chose him and I made a nation out of him. And then when you got into trouble and got into bondage because my family didn't treat each other like they should, I came and I rescued out of bondage and I led you through the Red Sea and I established you as a nation. And after wandering for a little bit, I then put you into the promised land and I gave you victory after victory after victory. I set you up in a prime location in a beautiful place flowing with milk and honey with everything you ever needed and said here you are this is who you are just follow me and everything will be great and you have chosen to leave the one that loves you and chase after empty promises that can never give you what you need and he is scorned it's not cold calculated reserved it is passionate love for us almost to the point that it feels uncomfortable for us talking about God in that way anybody know what Friday is guys anybody know what Friday is I just asked that question literally I saw eight wives look at their husband like do you know what Friday is what's Friday Valentine's Day right it's that day when we proclaim our love and Grand gestures are made when people are celebrating love and all that it means and all. It's kind of sickening at times, right? Amen. Thank you. I got a amen on that. Candies and cards and presents and all of that, right? Here's the thing about it. There is no one this Valentine's Day that is going to be as passionately in love with their spouse as the Lord is with his people. He loves us passionately. And so when we spurn him, when we go in a different direction, it's not he hates us. It's not that he's mad at us. It's that he is betrayed by us. 
Don't you hear that feeling in the words that he says to Hosea? Your wife, she's gone off and she's sold herself and she's doing all this stuff. You have got to say we're done. It's over. But here's the thing I love about the Lord. Is he doesn't just pursue us with passion. By the way, one of my favorite verses in Scripture is found in Zephaniah. I know you do your devotionals there all the time. Zephaniah chapter 3. In Zephaniah chapter 3, it says that the Lord sings over you and exalts over you with his singing. Now, let me just say something real quick, okay? The, the word there means he sings at the top of his lungs in enjoyment of us. You ever been around a loud singer? You know what I'm talking about? Somebody that just sings... Not necessarily good, but loudly, right? You know what we do with people that sing too loudly? We talk about them is what we do, right? Growing up in church in Dyersburg, we had a lady a couple of rows behind us that she just let it go. Like frozen, just let it go. It didn't matter, right? Sang at the top of her lungs every Sunday, never in the right key or pitch. And I don't even know what the right key or pitch was, but I know that wasn't it. Okay, just let it go. It sang. Well, here's what Scripture says: it says that God sings over us at the top of His lungs without any care who's around or what's happening. And then it says, when it says He exalts in us, the word there actually means He furiously dances in celebration of you. It is a passionate love. And here's the thing I love about God. Because the truth is, when you get in Hosea chapter 2, it's like God has written a breakup letter with Israel. It's over. We're done. Forget it. Hosea, you have been released. It's not happening. Even though I told you you're going to love her and she's going to go back, I'm done. And then you get to Hosea chapter 3. I love this. Starting in verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Go and love your wife again. Even though she commits adultery with another lover. Now, now, let's just imagine the scene for a minute. From this, we get that Gomer has not just gone back to her lifestyle occasionally. She has left Hosea and gone. Gone. How many kids do they have? Do you think the kids are with her? No. So Hosea is at home with God scatters, not loved, and not mine. Right? Holding the house together without any help, probably wondering every night, what am I supposed to do? Is she coming home? Is she safe? Is she alive? Is this my life for good? And I love this. God comes to him and says, Go get her. Don't wait for her to repent. Don't wait for her to hit rock bottom. Don't wait for her to say, I'm sorry. Don't wait till she realizes the error of her ways. Go get her. And then he says this. Doing so will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel. Even though they don't deserve it, they have no reason to, There's nothing good about what they're doing, even though 
The people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. The next verse shows us the depth to which Hosea had to go. Verse 2 says, so I bought her back. Now, here's the picture I want you to get. I mean, we like to think that ancient Jerusalem and all that place was kind of pristine and wasn't as bad as what we think. But the truth is, in the ancient world and northern kingdom in Israel, there would have been places in the city that respectable people don't go. And Hosea, the prophet of God, is a respectable person, and there would be places he would not go. But God says, you've got to go there because you've got to get her back. And so he goes there to get her back. And when he gets there and he sees what's going on, he finds her. He didn't know where she was. And one translation of that says, go find her. And when you find her, buy her back. So he goes to do this. He is going to, now get this in your head. He is going to have to pay something as a ransom to get his own wife back. Now, I tried to find any other word than this one to, to tell you, but it's just the description of what is happening okay he basically has to go to the man who is in charge of her services and pay him to get her back in our world we call that a pimp and there's no other word for it in the dictionary imagine hosea prophet of God, man of God, follower of God, servant of God, sitting across the table from Gomer's master and negotiating a price to get his own wife back. I did not know that's in the Bible. Because it doesn't sound like something that's in the Bible. But here's the thing that's amazing about it. He did it, God said, to show how much God loves us. He tells us there he bought her for 15 pieces of silver, five bushels of barley, and a measure of wine. And we say to all that, what? What does that mean? Here's what I'll tell you. That is almost exactly the standard going price to purchase a slave in the ancient world. Hosea loved her. He married her. He took her life out of prostitution. He brings him into her home. He loves her children, his or not, as much as anything else. He holds the family together. And when she leaves him, betrays him, goes out to another lover, goes out to back to prostitution, he goes and buys her back. Now, there is a great big religious theological word for that called redemption. And here's what we have to understand. According to Scripture, time and time again, God talks about the need to buy back His people, to buy back us. And so we have to understand. We read the book of Hosea and Gomer and go, wow, that's a crazy story. Can't believe that's in the Bible. Can't believe those words are used in the Bible. Can't believe the story's in the Bible. It sounds like something out of Hollywood, not out of the Bible. What is going on here? And you read it and then you realize that we are Gomer. And maybe it's not that you've gone back into prostitution. But we all have sin that we sneak our way back into walking away from the Lord. And the truth is, without coming to Christ in the first place, we live as people in rebellion who are not His people, who are not part of His plan. And yet God offers to come and to buy us back. 
In fact, in the ancient world, the, the concept of uh, redemption involved three things. First of all, the person who was being bought back had to be in slavery. Second of all, there was a ransom involved. And third, there was a human intermediary that had to pay the price. And here's the thing for you and me. Scripture tells us that the book of Hosea was a foreshadowing of what was to come. Because Hosea wasn't the last one that had to go into a section of town that nobody wanted to be in and do an action to pay for something that shouldn't have had to be paid for in the first place. A price that should have never had to be paid, but he did because of his love. Romans 3 says, there's no difference. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. And yet all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed before him unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those have faith in Jesus. Colossians 2.14, Paul says that God in Jesus Christ has canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In the Old Testament, in their day, in the Old Testament and New Testament times, there would have been this thing called a document of charges, a record of charges, and they would have written down everything that was owed in order to get you back. And it says in Scripture that God has sat across the table from the one who has controlled us because we have betrayed our Lord and have walked away from Him, and God paid the price for our sins and bought us back at the price of His Son. It wasn't some barley and some wine. It was the blood of His Son. Now see, Scripture reminds us, we somehow forget how bad a shape we're in. A few years ago on my uh, trip to Brazil, you always worry about who you're going to sit next to. Because it's not a short flight. Seven and a half hours. This is when I was, before I was even pastoring here. And I got on a flight and I sat down next to somebody and they... Um, apparently believed that there weren't good showers in America. And they were waiting to get to our destination. Right? And they were... Uh, you ever had a uh, armrest hog? You know what I'm talking about? Somebody that thinks that both armrests on that plane are theirs and they got their arm their elbow and they're getting space. And Well, I got sat down and I just kind of put my arm on the armrest and I felt to get pushed off, you know, and I'm... I'm a pastor, and I'm like, I can't get mad at this guy. I can't, you know. And so he's doing all that. And uh, sorry for this image that's coming. But when time comes and the plates have been passed and everything's going on, he pulls his tray table down, lays his head on it, and he raises his arms up like this. And he also didn't believe in deodorant, apparently. And a moment I thought, man, if I could just, you know, get some spray out and help this out. But then I realized this was not like a little cologne's going to freshen everything up. This is like serious intervention has to happen. Right? Yeah, anybody ever? Okay. I'm not saying you, I'm saying somebody you know, right? There are a lot of us that think we can just splash some stuff on us. But our sin problem involves serious intervention. 
In fact, in Scripture, there are several ways it's described. The first is that we have been brought from death unto life, not sickness unto health, not kind of bad and the sort of good, that in following Jesus, he brings us from death, doorknob, doornail, death, over and done death into a great and massive life before us. That we have been taken from an orphan to being a son of the Most High. That we have been taken from being a stranger to being a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. That we have been taken from darkness into light. That we have been taken from the peasantry to the royal house. Because of the passionate grace of God. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. was blind, but now I see. Let's pray together.